0: I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal, and today our guest is Landy Spotswood, an MA partner at Vincent & Elkins in Houston. Landy, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, David. I'm excited to be on.
0: Today, we're, we're going to talk about several things. First of all, your background, how you came to practice M&A. Secondly, the intersection of M&A and your practice and the energy industry, which is in a period, obviously, of considerable change. And then finally, your work as a sports editor on the college newspaper when you were in college and your continued interest in sports. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your background.
1: Sure. So I am a Key West, Florida native. Fellow natives, we refer to ourselves as Key West Conk. So if you're a local, you're born in Key West, you're called a conk. We take pride in that, even though it's kind of a funny name. So I I was born there. Went to high school there, never lived anywhere else until I went away for school. And then I went up the East Coast and spent seven years at Harvard, four in college and three in law school, and then moved to Houston. We're up in practicing at VE for 13 or 14 years now. So I kind of pick a place and stick there for a while. That's my M.O. And how did you end up in law school?
0: And then how did you end up practicing M&A?
1: Sure. So I thought, I had a grand dream from the time I was 10 or 11 that I was going to find a cure for cancer. That was my grand game plan. So I went to Harvard College. I majored in biochemistry. I was planning on then going on to get an MD, PhD. And I was a little bit naive. And I hadn't spent a lot of time in a lab. And so when I finally started spending a fair amount of time in a lab my junior year at college in connection with my upper level honors research requirement, I thought it was really boring. Not the science. I love the science. I still love the science. I still go read kind of the primary science journals. But I didn't like being in a lab for a long stretches of the time gathering data and doing the mechanical or behind the, the processes to gather the data, even though it was very cool things. So I thought, well, I'm, I'm only 20. Maybe I should do a, do a career shift here and come up with a new plan, even though I've got to you know steer away from what I thought I was going to do since I was 10. And like a lot of people who don't know what to do next, I applied to law school. It felt like I could kick the decision can down the road a little bit and got in always leaned left brain a little bit so was taking some classes at the business school was taking accounting and financial statements and then i took an m&a course with bob clark and leo strein uh my second or third year in law school i think it was my second year and it was just fantastic i, I was hooked the way they teach the history of M&A, they teach it through the cases, which makes sense because former Chief Justice Shrine at the time he was a vice chancellor, he wrote a lot of these opinions. And so you read the opinions, which are really these tomes of kind of a whole story, uh, you know, a, a human drama that is M&A. And I just thought it was fantastic. I became a deal junkie. I was 100% certain that's the kind of law I wanted to practice. And so... I came out of law school looking for that kind of work, but I didn't want to go to New York. I was kind of done with the Northeast. The winters were not the thing for the Key West girls. So I was looking for sophisticated deal work, not in the Northeast. And I ended up here in Houston.
0: And you started practicing around the time of the great financial crisis. And at least with regard to the energy, I I think just before the shale boom started.
1: That's right. It was a really fascinating time to be a young lawyer and really lucky to be a young lawyer in Houston uh, compared to a lot of places. My first day of work was a Monday. And it was the Monday after the Sunday Lehman filed for bankruptcy and the weekend that Hurricane Ike kicked Houston. So the city of Houston didn't have power, most of the city for that week, but downtown did. And so we had everybody's you know, kids in the office because it was September and 100 degrees and you know no one had air conditioning at their houses and kids were pulling fire alarms and the stock market was crashing. And, you know, I'm a fresh out of law school and I'm like, hey, can I have an assignment? Like, what do you want me to do? And everyone's like, the world's on fire. Go away. Stop annoying us. So it was very strange really quickly that year, a lot of my colleagues, you know, were at law firms where there were significant layoffs. It it was it was scary. But energy was a little bit different. You know, the financial crisis was was scary for everybody, but their commodities were viewed as a safe haven then. And all of a sudden crude oil prices were at I think historic highs. You know, they were at 145 or something like that a barrel at that time. So it, it it was a lot of volatility, a, a lot of A lot of nervous energy, and then quickly after that, we hit what would become the defining trend in energy for the next decade, and really has driven a lot of the deal activity in based out of Houston, which was the shale revolution. So that started really hitting in earnest probably when I was a second or third year lawyer, right at the end of the financial crisis, and we just saw massive inflows of capital. To fund the build out of this new decade of American energy dominance that really now has come to a, I wouldn't say an end, but a real transition point because capital's not flowing into that anymore. And people are really looking to the next step, both from a returns perspective and from a transitioning to a lower carbon future perspective. Natural gas drove. A lot of America's reduction in carbon emissions over the last 10 years, switching from coal and natural gas has done as much as anything to help America lower its carbon emissions. But the next step is further electrifying the grid and things like that. And now that's where the capital is flying. And so we're excited about the next stage of the energy transition here, too.
0: Obviously, Houston is the center of the energy industry worldwide, and especially that major energy companies have been thinking about alternative technologies for a a generation or more. How much of that, as a lawyer in the trenches, did you see earlier in your career? And when did it those technologies start significantly changing your practice?
1: There has been discussion and focus and investment in alternative energy technologies out of Houston and and, and Texas and the traditional energy investment complex, if you will, for for a very long time. For my entire practice, you've had Saudi Aramco has a, a ventures group that does a lot of work and we've done a lot of work for them and they've been very focused on the technology that's going to drive the the next step of of energy evolution and other strategics have as well. And then the private equity sponsors, not, not all of them, but a lot of them have been focused in investing in alternative energy, wind, solar, all those types of things. What I think historically was at least my experience with, with the wind and the solar is it would become more investable and more capital would be allocated to it at times where it looked like there was going to be scarcity uh, or high cost associated with traditional you know carbon-based fuels. And so wind IPOs were really interesting when crude oil was at $100, right? And, and then all of a sudden the shale boom drove it down. But I think the most forward-looking strategics were always focused on kind of what was next. And so I think everyone's been focused on it. But two things have really accelerated the urgency of the capital allocation. And I think it's, one, for the strategics, they are getting a significant amount of pressure from their investor base, from their pension funds, their institutional investors, to get better, right? To actively find things to do to lower carbon intensity. Even your traditional, you know, upstream oil and gas companies, you can do that, and you can do that in better ways and more creative ways. And you can take the earnings from that and invest it in the next step. So you've got big strategics like Occidental Petroleum that's out there at the forefront on investing in direct air capture for for carbon, you know, figuring out how to capture carbon out of the air. And they've been there for a long time, focused on that. So Strategic started viewing it as a IR necessity, right? Because their institutional investors started to make capital allocation decisions within the sector based on who was doing a better job of being forward-thinking and reducing emissions now. And then second, on the sponsor side, we've just seen a real demand from LPs to invest with sponsors that are going to go out and find ways to both do good while making money. They, they want to see investments in energy transition and they want to see people make money. And so we've seen all these funds raised on climate funds, you know, socially sustainable funds, clean infrastructure. We're seeing massive amounts of fundraising around these things. And as much competition as I've ever seen in traditional energy, we're now seeing from the world of private capital, trying to put it into these clean energy and energy transition opportunities. So it's tough. There's so much competition out there right now that they're kind of squeezing their their margins pretty tight, squeezing those returns down to what they think. They can accept and looking for more creative ways to invest, more creative ways to create returns, as opposed to just kind of bidding a price on a project. But there's so much capital lined up in the industry because LPs wanted to put in with sponsors to go do this type of investment that we know the capital is going to have to be deployed. And it's perfect timing. You know, I read an article this morning quoting, and I forget the official's name now, but someone in the Department of Energy saying right now, $200 billion a year is being spent, invested into energy transition technologies and infrastructure. And he said in order to hit President Biden's goals, which are very aggressive goals, that needs to at least go into It needs to at least be a trillion dollars a year going into this from the, the private sector. And that drives a lot of MA activity.
0: Let's take each of those in turn. How, as you talk to your public company clients, are you helping them think about managing their relationships with institutional investors who want those companies to search for more energy efficient technologies and who may have other concerns as well?
1: I work with some of my partners who really specialize in, in these areas. In M&A, every M&A transaction, people in the boardrooms are now thinking, how does this impact our rollout around our ESG story? So M&A lawyers are very involved in all of this. But if it's a joint conversation with our, you know, we have a B&E, we're, we're very lucky to have a world class shareholder activism practice that's very, very active and led by Lawrence Albond and Patrick And So we get those guys involved. We have a, an ESG task force that's got people that are very focused on what's next in terms of what the regulatory disclosure is going to look like, what we think the SEC is going to start making people have to measure and report on and and all of that. So we like to get in front of all of that and have a very holistic conversation with clients. But if you just step back and think what big picture do they need to do? I think there's a bar in terms of what investors expect and it keeps going up and that they want focus. They want a plan. As those plans come out, they want to start having accountability against that plan. They want to see progress. And, you know, it used to be they just, you know, <laughs> you were among the best energy companies. If you were saying, Hey, Hey, we care about ESG, we're not flaring a bunch of gas or we operate safely or whatever it is. And then it's, well, wait a minute, how are you measuring it? What are your goals to contribute to less carbon usage in your business? What are your goals to contribute to actual carbon capture? And then are you achieving it? How are you comparing? So I think that the key advice we try to bring to our clients is to help them understand how the bar is raising and what they need to expect next. At the end of the day, the clients who are traditional oil and gas companies are involved in the processing or transportation of, of traditional fossil fuels. That's what they are. And they're investing in new technologies and new things too. But for them, it's, you know, they're not going to wake up one day and be a solar company, but it's more how do you continue to make the progress that's going to put you at the top of your class and when investors are making asset allocation decisions and, and they are going to invest in the sector, they think you're among the best to invest in.
0: That's interesting because part of what you're describing from the law firm perspective is the evolution of that ESG practice into a distinct practice area. Whereas when you started practicing, that probably would have been something that the MA partner, the relationship partner would have handled as part of interacting with the GC and and the management team and the board.
1: I think that's right. I, I still have discount kind of the importance of a relationship partner that really knows the business and they're gonna be you know pulling from all these resources within a firm. But I, I do think that the ecosystem around all this has gotten more complex. The, the amount of regulatory bodies, third-party groups, the what the different proxy advisory firms and uh, big institutional investors, scorecards metrics, what they're looking for. There's just a lot more out there to work through. And we're lucky that we have people who are extraordinarily familiar and facile with, with all of that. Because that that's a full-time job and it's hard to be is, is is on top of all that when you're you're a dealer like me. So it's a team effort to really help our clients think about all this. And I think it's an important part of day-to-day being anyone who's trying to attract capital right now, be you a sponsor or a public company, but it it and because of that, it's a it's a big thing in connection with deals.
0: And and then could you talk a little bit about the PE side, you know, how those clients are evolving, what they're looking for and the kinds of deals they're considering now as compared to uh, the kinds of deals they may have been considering a, a decade ago as as private equity was starting to invest more and more money into energy.
1: I think there's been a real rotation in terms of what's attracting the most interest and in activity. It was the beginning of the shale boom, and even the, there, down here, people colloquially refer to the, the different eras of the shale boom. We've had all these mini cycles as 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. So during those booms, there was a massive influx of capital to, and depending on what kind of returns you were seeking, but to the the upstream, to the midstream to build all that out. We, we saw just massive amounts of capital come in. Now the big investors in that space, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them are starting to turn their focus to the next what, what they're viewing as the next generation of this industry. And so, some of that is LNG, small scale LNG. You know, gas is obviously cleaner than than coal, and a lot of that LNG is going places where it's going to be used to fire power plants that would otherwise be coal plants. And a lot of people think that a lot of the infrastructure that can be built up around LNG when hydrogen technology gets there could be used with hydrogen, which would be a a cleaner fuel. So we're seeing some of that. We're seeing lots of interest in the infrastructure around a transition to a, a mostly electric vehicle fleet. We had a First Reserve, which is a big private equity sponsor who's historically focused a lot in, in traditional energy. are SPAC today announced a, a deal um, with an electric vehicle charging company. What we've done just did V and and there's a, a lot that we don't work on. What we've done, gosh, I think eight or nine electric vehicle deals in the last 18 months now, between electric vehicle and electric vehicle charging. Batteries, obviously everything related to electricity, you've got to get the batteries right. Solar, distributed solar, the kind of everything related to figuring out how to get power sources closer to people as opposed to being part of this big grid that every now and again you get really concerned about because something happens like Texas freezes for a week. Hydrogen, wind, all of that is just really exciting for all of our sponsor investors right now and both domestically and internationally right? The developed world, Europe and the United States in particular, are more advanced than a lot of other countries in terms of being cleaner from our power generation standpoint. And so we're seeing a lot of interest in building out better, cleaner infrastructure in other parts of the world.
0: And then finally, you're a sports junkie, which dates it at least as far back as college. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, I you know, my lot in life is to be surrounded by boys and men. I grew up with two brothers and a sports donkey for a mom and dad. So I love sports. I love watching them all kinds. I don't have as much time for it as I used to. But I started writing and covering sports when I was very young. I think I was in middle school when I started writing for the local paper in Q West and then was sports chair of the Harvard Crimson and worked with some folks that are still full-time sports journalists now, Pablo Torres on ESPN every day, he probably has a more fun job than me, and watch a lot of great athletes. So I still try to make it up for Harvard-Yale, but I don't make it to as many Harvard football games as I
0: used to. And then do you have a position on the University of Texas's desire to join the SEC, which I understand is one of the most controversial questions in the great state of Texas at the moment.
1: It is. So I went to Harvard, which wonderful football team, but different kind of thing than the SEC. But I am a season ticket holder at the University of Florida. So I, I'm, I'm a Florida Gator. So I'm an SEC person. I chant SEC. You know, that's what I do. And I'm excited about Texas coming. I I, I really am. Mainly because as I've gotten older, the joy I get out of football games is less who wins, then oh, I get to have fun with people and, you know, Mm -hmm. joke and tease them about how terrible their quarterback played or whatever else. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun for me to be here in Houston and uh, be able to watch the Gators beat up on the Longhorns. And I'm married to a Longhorn, so we'll have an ongoing fight in the household.
0: Landy, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, David. I really appreciate it.
0: For Drinks With a Deal, I'm David Marcus.